welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark, that you've given us your entire word in this book, uh, inerrant, necessary, sufficient, um, tasty. We, we love the taste of your word. And so we just pray, Lord, as we open it tonight, and we just pray that it would not return void, but it would accomplish what you have for us here. We pray that no one would leave this place without knowing that they had met with the living God. And that's something only your spirit can do. And so we pray for your spirit to come tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started kind of a mini-series in Romans. And the mini-series, if there was a mini-series, would be called Everyone Needs Jesus. And so last week, we saw in chapter one that immoral pagans need Jesus. Tonight, we're going to be in chapter two. If you want to turn there, Romans chapter two. We're going to see that religious people need Jesus. And then next week, Gabe's going to be in Romans 3 and see that everyone needs Jesus. And the reason why Paul needs to go after both the kind of immoral pagans and the religious people is that it turns out there's actually two ways to avoid seeing your need for the gospel. There's two ways to avoid seeing your need for the gospel. One is to act like God doesn't exist. And if God doesn't exist, then of course you don't need the gospel. They will call that the irreligious technique, is that you deny God's existence you don't need the gospel if there is no God. That's kind of what we were looking at last week, the irreligious evasion of the gospel. But there's another way to do it too, and it might be a way more of us are familiar with. You can acknowledge that God exists and yet think that your righteousness is enough. So you acknowledge that God exists, but you believe that your own righteousness is enough to stand before him. And if that's true, you also don't need the gospel. We'll call that the religious evasion. Now, Paul tonight, he's going after the religious this week. And in verses 1 and 3, we're going to see that there's a hypothetical religious person that he turns to and speaks to. He calls him, O man. We find out a little bit later in verse 17 that this hypothetical religious person is Jewish. And Paul does a bit of a sneak attack on this guy, okay? And this guy is not a, he's a hypothetical person. It's kind of anyone that's listening that's more a religious type person. He does a sneak attack on him. It's an ambush. There's bait. The bait was chapter 1. The bait was chapter one when Paul would talk about the pagan world and all the sins out there in the culture. And then Paul imagines a person, a religious person listening in and enjoying it a little too much. Okay. Enjoying Paul's, you know, discussion about the pagan sins a little too much thinking like, oh, that's right, Paul, those filthy pagans, they do deserve God's wrath. You know, there's somebody in the corner doing that. And, and that's when Paul springs the trap and he looks over and he says, so do you. He's all, I got you. Right. It got you. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He says, I'm talking about you as well. Now this is an act of love, guys. It's an act of love that Paul would go after the religious, after the ones that trust in their religious affiliations and their religious deeds. Because, guys, there's a type of moralistic preaching, and maybe you guys have experienced it. There's a type of moralistic preaching that's always talking about the sins of people out there. Always talking about the sins of the culture. And you know what? Moralistic religious people that are unconverted love preaching like that. Why wouldn't they? They just get to hear week after week how everybody out there is bad, but we're the good ones, right? That kind of preaching leaves religious people proud and unconverted. Unconverted people that are in the church and feel themselves to be fine because they feel themselves to be righteous. But guys, Paul loves religious people too much to just give them chapter one. 
He knows the ways that religious people avoid the gospel because he was one, right? Paul was one of them. And so he knows exactly how their minds work. He cares about those who are self-righteous and religious. And I ask you guys tonight, some of you guys, that's the most annoying person in your life. You know, do you care about the self-righteous religious person? Paul did. You might be here and maybe you're not a Christian and you say, you know what, that's exactly why I'm not a Christian. Because religious people are so self-righteous and judgmental and hypocritical. And if that's you tonight, I've got good news for you. The Bible also condemns self-righteousness and judgmentalism and hypocrisy. A lot. If you've ever read Jesus, a lot of what he says is against those who are self-righteous, judgmental, and hypocritical. And the good news today for you, if you're not a Christian yet, is that the message of Jesus creates the exact opposite kind of heart. The message of Jesus, the true gospel, humbles and transforms you from within. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So in this text, Paul targets the self-righteous ways that religious people try to avoid the gospel. He goes after four religious evasions in this text. I'm going to read it to you in a sec. You're like, what about the text? I'm going to read it to you in a second. There's four evasions you're going to see. And the four evasions are these. Judging others is an evasion. Right doctrine can be an evasion. Group identity can be an evasion. And externalism can be an evasion. So what we're going to see is that judging others won't save you. Right doctrine won't save you. Group identity won't save you. Externalism won't save you. And so though his original audience was Jewish, guys, these evasions, these religious evasions are something that get all of us. We're all can, can fall into these. Paul wants to dismantle these. And he wants to dismantle them because he wants to make sure that our hope is only in Jesus. Because the last thing Paul wants for us is to stand before God on the final day, trying to stand in our own righteousness, which is a mirage. We think we're righteous, but we're not. And, and Paul had this exact experience. This is the experience of Paul. This is his testimony. This is what he wants for you this morning. Listen to this. Philippians 3, 4. Though I myself have reason to have confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more. And then he lists all of his religious things. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then he says, indeed, I have counted all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or manure. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him with a righteousness, not of my own, which comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what he wants for every one of us. That was his conversion experience. He was the self-righteous religious, and he wants all of us to have what he has. Okay, so let's, let's look at the first one. Uh, judging others won't save you. Look at verse 1. This is Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So Paul turns on the religious hearer, and he tells them, judging others won't save you. Guys, this is a classic way to feel better about yourself. You guys realize that? Judging others, and you guys all agree, is a classic way of feeling better about yourself. It is a modern pastime. It is a sport in our culture, bigger than any other sport. And judgmentalism makes us feel righteous. It feeds our self-righteousness. And you don't even have to be religious to be judgmental and self-righteous. But we're better at it, okay? Religious people are better at it. And there is a clear religious motive for judging others. It makes you feel more righteous. And so if you view righteousness as a ladder, 
And all the people in the world are on different rungs of the righteousness ladder. The more righteous people are at the top, you know, the scumbags are at the bottom, right? And then somewhere rung 47 is the cutoff for heaven, okay? If that's the way you view, that's a religious way of viewing righteousness. The cutoff is rung 47. There is a lot of incentive for you to look at the sins of others and see them as lower than you. It gives you more confidence that maybe you'll make the cut. If there's a lot of people below you on the righteousness ladder, maybe you're going to make the cut. So there's a lot of motive there to notice sins and judge others. So what's the solution? What's the solution to a heart that does that? Paul believes the solution is seeing God's perfect justice. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the kindness and riches and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will render each one according to his works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who practices evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. At first sight, you might see that and think that somehow Paul's saying that people are made right before God by their works. You might think that, reading that. I'll tell you why that's not the case, because chapter 1, 2, and 3 is a long argument of Paul's, and it ends in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified. In his sight, for from the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if he's got this long argument at the end, he goes, no one's going to be justified by the law. There's no way in the middle he could be saying that we are, okay? That's not what he's saying in this text. What is he doing? Paul is pointing out that all of us who have been saved are also being transformed. And this is a real thing. If you've received the true Jesus and the Holy Spirit is within you, you will be transformed. He called it in chapter one, he called it the obedience of faith. This is a real thing. He doesn't, he'll, he'll take you wherever you're at, but he won't leave you where you're at. He's going to transform you. True faith changes our lives. And so on the final day, when God appears and judges all people, it will be evident by people's deeds who belong to him. It won't be a total surprise. People's lives will be different. Your lives will be different. Your lives will be different from your neighbors. Your lives will be different from the world. And when he separates out, you know, the sheep from the goats, he separates his his people from others, our lives will be evident. There will be a clear mark that we're God's. Those works don't save us, but they do mark us, okay? We aren't saved by our works, but there will be works in all those who are truly saved. And the Bible talks about that a lot, and you guys are familiar with that. So that's how Paul can both say in verse 6 that he's going to render to each one according to their works, and then in chapter 3, verse 20, say that, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. We're not saved by our works, but those who are saved by God's grace will be transformed over time. He doesn't leave us where we're at. But why does he bring this up in the first place? I think the big effect that he's trying to have here of bringing the final judgment up to judgmental people is to put us in our place. 
Did you feel put in your place? You know, if you felt judgmental and you read that passage and you heard about the final judgment, you get put in your place. You realize you're not the judge. Do you notice he called you the judge in that passage? He said, you, the judge. We try to put ourselves in the place of the judge. This passage reminds us of the final judgment. We're not the judge. God's the judge. And according to his perfect standard, there's really only two rungs. There's the one God's on, and there's the one all the rest of us are on. There isn't this ladder that we have to judge people and try and figure out what pecking order we're on. We're all on the same rung. We're all sinful before God. We're clearly on the bottom rung, all of us. Jesus told a story about this. I love this. Luke 18, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That fits perfectly with this passage, right? Jesus told this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. And then it says, but the tax collector was standing afar off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus comments, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And then he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And so will we guys when we realize that judging others won't save us. Judging others won't save us. You know what else won't save us? Right doctrine won't save us. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Just merely knowing a lot about God will not save you. And I think especially with people of more our tradition, we tend to feel closer to God and feel like somehow we're God's favorites because we have a lot of knowledge. We know a lot of things. The Jewish person that Paul's talking to they had great privileges in this area. If you look at Romans 3.1, it says, What advantage has the Jew much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so the Jews had massive advantages in this area, how much they knew about God. But guys, just knowing God's law doesn't make you any more righteous than someone that doesn't know it. Because the law, guys, is like, the law is like a mirror. The law is like an MRI, okay? A mirror does not make you clean. It shows you where the dirt is. An MRI does not heal you. It shows you where the disease is. In the same way, the law can't cleanse or heal you. All it can do is show your unrighteousness. And so we're not any better off just by knowing. And I think we tend to think that knowing and believing the right things makes us more righteous people. And we can feel judgmental and superior even to other Christians based on what we know. I mean, if you think about it, guys, you have, I should just remind you, you have God's entire word, probably multiple copies, right? Plus you have it on your phone whenever you want and all that. This is an incredible gift. You have God's very words and you have amazing access to 2,000 years of great theology. A lot of us think, oh, well, I just read the Bible and I just, you know, I only get it straight from the source. It's really not true. You stand on the shoulders of lots of people that over 2,000 years have read this book and studied this book, and most of the things you think are your own insights, somebody told you, okay? Somebody taught you. It's amazing. And many of you guys have just amazing understanding of theology, amazing understanding of theology. And if you think about, like, we're a part of an amazing tradition, the Reformed tradition, 
amazing amounts of theological wealth, guys. Just think about the amazing creeds, historic creeds we have, the historic confessions, the catechisms, the centuries of amazing Bible teaching. We are incredibly blessed with knowledge of God. I mean, think about just as a church, like we have this understanding in our church that the whole Bible points to Jesus. That's not something I knew when I first became a Christian. I didn't know the whole Bible pointed to Jesus. We know that. We know about the doctrine of union with Christ and and all the benefits of the fact that we, when we came to faith in Jesus, got united to Jesus. We know about the doctrine of adoption and the doctrine of justification. And we know the power of being gospel-centered in our lives and finding all of our strength and power from the gospel. We know a ton about the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives and how we're to rely on him. It's amazing. We could easily think that somehow we're closer to God just because we know and believe the right things. But Paul helps us here. You might not like it, but he's going to help you. Here's how he's going to help you. He wants to point out how little you've applied of what you know. (laughs) Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Guys, our doing falls far behind our knowing. Would you agree? Would you agree that you're doing? (laughs) Your knowing is here and your doing is like miles behind, okay? Right? We need Jesus. We need Jesus as much as anyone. He also points out that others who know far less than us actually live lives that are much better than us. Take a look at this, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Have you guys ever noticed how many unbelievers in your life live far better lives than you do? Anybody have unbelievers in your life that live way better lives than you do? I do. I have family that I'm like amazed by their generosity, don't know Jesus. I've got neighbors that are incredibly joyful and generous and loving people and don't know Jesus. I've got people I work with, I've got clients, I've got people all around me that I'm just constantly astounded by their generosity and their love and things like that. What explains that? This text actually explains that. It's called Common Grace. God's grace that's out in the world to assist unbelievers to live far better lives than you would expect for people that deny God. Because you'd think if they deny God, they're just going to live like cannibals or something, right? They're just going to like live crazy and awful lives and be terrible to children and their spouses and all this stuff, right? Be terrible employees. Not the case, right? What explains it? God's common grace. God's common grace is him assisting unbelievers to live far better lives than you'd expect. And this text shows us how God does it does in two ways. It says the work of the law is written in their hearts, right? So God has written his law in the hearts of all people. And that's why when you look around at cultures, like you see differences in cultures and differences in the, the morals of different cultures, but there's a lot of similarity. Why? Because God has imprinted his law in people's hearts and he's put something else. Do you see what it is? The conscience. Conscience is like a little judge inside every person that kind of tells whether they're living up to it or not. It says it either excuses or accuses them, right? And so God uses the law written within the hearts and the conscience to make unbelievers far better than one would expect, often better than us in many ways. And so what can we do with this knowledge? We can enjoy our friends and our family and our neighbors who are not believers. We should share Christ with them. 
but we can enjoy them even if they don't know the Lord. We can enjoy their goodness and their generosity and their love as God's gift to us, as God's grace in them. And you know what else it should do for us? It should humble us. It should humble us when we see God's common grace in other people's lives where they're living in a way far better in some areas than us, even in spite of all we know. You know, like with, I mean, you know God's sovereign over all things, right? You know how the story ends. You know so many things. You know that you've been saved from hell by Jesus, and you know you're going to have this perfect future with him. And it's amazing how little that transforms us, right? Amen? You guys feel that? Okay, so that's how he helps us. See how Paul kind of tearing away these, these religious things we trust in. He also says group identity won't save us. Look at verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew... Okay, that's kind of inflammatory. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, what he's, what he's going to do here is he's going to show that group identity, the right group identity, doesn't save us. The typical Jewish person of this day would not have thought of himself as an individual, an isolated individual like we do. That's actually a very modern way of thinking about yourself. A Jew of this time would have thought of himself as a part of a collective that God would save and vindicate over the nations. You were automatically the good guy. If you were Jewish, because you were a part of a collective that God had promised to save and vindicate over the nations. And so there was a temptation to think by virtue of being Jewish that you were on God's side and you could look down upon everyone else. And you get a, a picture of that in verse 17. Check this out. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and listen to this, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of children. Okay, there's a whole lot of swagger there, okay? There's a whole lot of religious swagger there when you're looking at everyone as they're all kind of blind in the dark, foolish, and they're all children compared to you, right? What does Paul do? He stops the swagger. And we can feel like that, can't we? You know, we also have been given, people of Israel given a, a mission to be a light and to teach the nations. We too have been given that mission as the new covenant people of God. Look at the Great Commission. And we can have a swagger about it. What does Paul do? He stops the swagger by pointing out the hypocrisy. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That'll take the swagger away. We too, guys, have been given a special role to be a light and teach the nations, to teach the nations the gospel. But guys, we need to deal with the fact, like this passage is saying, that we fail to live up to that role a lot. We don't just have to point our fingers at church history. We can point our fingers at our own history to show that we have fallen short of that a lot. We have fallen into the sins of the world. We have caused the name of God much shame by our behavior. Guys, we need Jesus as much as the people we're called to bring Jesus to. Amen? That's the, that's the way to go out there into the world, right? We go out there with the swagger he described. That, then what we're going to find is that God's name is going to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. If we go out there with the belief that, and the true belief that we need Jesus as much as the person we're bringing the gospel to, then that's how we're going to bring God glory. The fourth one, the last one. Externalism won't save you. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of some value if you obey the law. The Jews of Paul's day were tempted to believe that simply the external marks of circumcision made them right with God. 
You know, that circumcision somehow showed that they were for sure right with God. Circumcision, guys, was a mark that God gave the people. He gave them this symbol. It's an interesting symbol. He gave them this symbol that it was a picture of of them being separated from the world, them being cut off from the world. When When a Jewish boy was separated from his foreskin, they were seen as being separated away from the world. It's a nice visual, isn't it? You like that? I was going to have diagrams. Most of you guys know what it is. I have a funny story about it, though. So when I was in vet school, there was a friend of mine, and he was telling me this story that him and his brother were hearing about circumcision one morning in church, and uh, they went home, and they were with their friends and stuff, having lunch with their family. And one of the kids goes, man, that's weird. I'm glad I was never circumcised. And his mom's like, you were. And he was like super confused. He had no idea what it was. Ask your parents, all of you children. This would be good times. But God called his people, guys, not just to be physically circumcised, but to match it in the heart. This was supposed to be just a symbol of something in the heart. What was the thing in the heart? That sin would be cut out from your heart. That you'd be circumcised in your heart. In fact, even in the law, guys, in Deuteronomy, in the, in the, in the, in the first five books there, in Deuteronomy, in, verse, in chapter 10, he says this, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Isn't that amazing? That sin would be cut out of our hearts. That's what it's really supposed to be about. And what Paul says is that you can have the external mark all you want, but it makes no difference unless you have the internal transformation. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? This part's very hard to read. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's very possible that some of us are hoping in external morality to save us. And you might think that as long as you kind of do the right things and say the right things around the right people, that somehow that covers your sin. That's a religious way of thinking. Notice in the end, he says, his praise is not from man, but from God. A lot of times we seek our praise from man, right? And so we're going to do the external things. We're going to be a part of a church. We're going to kind of do basically what they require, you know, so that we can kind of feel like we've had the stamp put on us. We can feel somehow that if we do and say the right things, it somehow covers up the sin inside of us, right? So that we can be seen and praised by men. But he says here, the important thing is that God sees the heart. God sees the heart and he deals with you on the basis of your heart. You guys realize that? He deals with you on the basis of your heart. There is no, an example I like of this, when you're praying, have you ever been praying and you're thinking like, yeah, maybe I should confess this sin. And then you're like, yeah, I don't really want to. He's hearing all that, okay? You know, it's kind of an odd thing, right? You're praying, you're like, ah, oh, I don't want to bring it up. He's like, you did. Okay, like we guys deal with God. We interface with him at the level of our heart, okay? So we tend to think that whatever's on the inside is seen less than the outside. God sees our actions, our words, and our thoughts and desires equally vividly. We're not used to that because people don't. Thank God they don't, right? But God does. 
He sees them equally vividly. And so, guys, we need the sin in our hearts to be cut away, right? We need a circumcision in the heart. And, guys, that's not a surgery you can do to yourself any more than you could give yourself your own bypass surgery. It's like forceps, you know, you're like you're doing it. No, you can't do that, right? And this is something where you can't do yourself. Look at verse 29. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Cutting away that sin from your heart requires the Holy Spirit. Guys, I want you to realize something tonight. Only the Holy Spirit can make you an authentic Christian. You cannot make yourself an authentic Christian. Other people can't make yourself an authentic Christian. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Remember what Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again. You have to be transformed from the inside. And that's something you get when all your self-righteousness has been taken away, all the things you trusted in are taken away, and you trust purely in Jesus Christ. And so... What's Paul done for us tonight? He stripped away our religious self-righteousness. You're like, I don't know what's left. (laughs) I don't know what I have left. What do you have left? What do you have left? How can you possibly see yourself as righteous before God now? You know, it can't be by judging others. Your right doctrine doesn't count for anything on that. Right doctrine's great, by the way. I love doctrine. I love theology. You guys know that. It's my top thing. But it won't make you right with God. Group identity, even being part of this group, not going to make you right with God. External deeds aren't going to make you right with God. How can you feel righteous before God? How can you be righteous before God? And the answer is only in Jesus. You're only left with Jesus, and he's all you need. In Jesus, we have the only rightful judge judged in our place. In Jesus, we have the one who knew God perfectly and obeyed him totally. In Jesus, we have the man of perfect integrity that was slain for all our hypocrisy. We have the only pure-hearted one who was cut off so that our hearts could be circumcised for him. Amen? That's what we're left with. And that's plenty. And that's all we need. And I just pray that God would continue to strip away anything else that we trust in. And if that means that we have to fall on our faces in some really embarrassing, horrible way in front of each other to strip that away, then so be it. Whatever it has to be, it needs to be stripped away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are not enough. Culture tells us, oh, you're enough, you're enough. We're not enough. We don't have the righteousness that you require. And your opinion is the only one that matters. And Lord, in addition to that, though, there's the good news that your son, Jesus Christ, is all the righteousness we need. And I just pray, Lord, that no one would leave here with false pretenses that somehow they're going to make themselves right before you, but that they would fully trust in your son, Jesus Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper, we just pray that this would be a sign of our only hope before you. It's Jesus and nothing else that we cling to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's Supper is for all those who know that they can't stand before God in their own righteousness. I love how God orchestrated things with catechism this morning is perfect, or tonight is perfect, that what the law requires. It reminds us that we can't stand before God in our own righteousness. This is for people that confess their sin like the Book of Common Prayer does. We have sinned against you, God, in thought and in deed and word by what we've done and what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And in addition to that, though, we cling to Jesus for his righteousness and seek the Spirit to change us within. If that's you, I invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. The bread represents Jesus' broken body. 
which has removed all of our sin. The cup represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for you. Blood that's intended to remove every stain you have on your conscience. Every stain you have on your conscience can be removed with the blood of Jesus. Let's take it together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the body together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul to everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take the blood together. Father, I pray as we worship you, as we fellowship together, as we enjoy one another, we just pray, Lord, that you would use all means, Lord, to bring about your promise in Ezekiel 36. You promised to cleanse us from idols. You promised to give us living hearts that, that beat for you. You've promised to fill us with your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, fulfill that promise in us tonight. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.